Chrometown Daily, Season 2, Episode 239, for August 27th, 2023. Tonight we're going to discuss cashless businesses, a currency system, rare earth, Death Valley, Kenya Power, nuclear decommissioning, lightsaber stabby, iconic toys, Auckland pipe, soul frame, wildfire detection, and artificial truth. Next on, again, Hometown Daily. Hello, hello. I am Merwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the AI that isn't matching the color scheme for today. But that's okay. You do you. You know, I like to feel mismatched. Um, good evening, hometown citizens. Greetings. Uh, so here, let me, let me scoot up a little closer to the mic there. All right. Um, let's get into, let's just jump straight into today's articles. We'll, we'll make today fast. Uh, the very first article is over in hometown daily. That's this show, but it's a channel over on hometown.com as well. So hometown daily the show here on twitch isn't really bound by just the content in the group the channel over on hometown.com we grab everything and discuss 12 articles um this article though is uh, la considers ban on cashless businesses because they exclude low-income people people of color and seniors and when i first saw la i thought where <laughs> but uh los angeles what why would los angeles so the article says los angeles could join other cities and states in banning cashless businesses some shops in la have turned to credit and digital payments only citing theft concerns i totally agree a councilwoman wants to ban the practice something san francisco and new york city have already done a Los Angeles city official wants to ban cashless businesses in because they impact low income people and uh, others who don't carry or don't have a predominant number of people carrying um, credit cards. And what they're pointing this at is three main main demographics, which would be low income people of color and seniors. Well, having put several businesses on the road to pivoting it's sometimes very difficult to get everybody on board with the pivot and so you have to be comfortable with not allowing or not enabling or not bending to the will of uh, said customers because they can't allow they stop you from moving your business forward um, because you are staying with legacy systems. And if you stay with legacy systems, then it can double, triple, quadruple the cost of operations um, to keep X number of people in your enterprise. Um, and that's the thing, you know, I, I, I don't really like the, I don't like the tone of this because it implies that it's out to get those low income people or people of color or seniors doggone it, er, you know, 
but that's not really what it's about. It's there's a high risk and higher friction with cash. I run the risk in a big city uh, of getting robbed violently if I'm carrying cash to a bank, but there's zero transactional um, remnant to digital transactions. Sure, you can steal my credit card, but I can cancel it before you leave, you know, 50 feet from my presence and steal my phone and it doesn't get unlocked unless you wipe it. And so now I have an insurance claim, so it's not a big deal and I'll get my money back that way. But with cash, there's high friction. I have to have a drawer. I have to count it out and in. I have to make sure that whoever is doing that cash drawer isn't skimming something off the top. Um, and I have to babysit inventory in a different way as well, because the cash matches what's sold each day. But if I have digital, then I know it went out the door or it was stolen. So what's count. the solution though, for the consumers? Like some people choose not to use credit cards. I don't have sympathy there, but I have concern with people that cannot get credit cards. So how are they going to do business? I mean, it's a different perspective from the business standpoint. I fully get why they would want to use credit. And cash cards are the same thing as a business card, but some people don't want to deal with banks and other people don't want to deal with one thing or another of a digital presence. And to that, I say, seek another business seek a business that is more compatible with your particular buying dynamic but don't paint everybody as ageist racist or uh what's the the financial equivalent of of an ist elitist is not really the <laughs> that's same, not but... even it really i mean i was gonna say uh, socioeconomic you know if. elitist you end up saying elitist again i don't know i'll have to figure out what this um that term is my brain just anyway the article was is over at businessinsider.com and katie belovic is the uh author of this i'm gonna oops, let me throw the link from hometown over into your chat there and you can go and check that article out on your own but um, it says some shops in LA have turned to credit for or digital payments only citing theft concerns. So, okay. So what about every business that's online? It has no, no cash footprint. Are you going to suddenly not allow websites to sell stuff in LA? I mean, it's rather absurd. Okay. But what if it's a grocery store or something that sells essential items? And somebody cannot get a credit card, not chooses not to. Okay, so How we're are they going to get groceries. Yeah, I understand. The problem is really that there are people that are somewhere in that spectrum that they can't get or don't want to get or whatever. And to that, I say they have to go to a, a, a business that and that is capable of supporting that type of transaction but why I, you know i'm not basing my my decision to there may be people do that do that okay i just 
there's there's people out there that will base the decision on uh, race or socioeconomic status or age or whatever. I mean, somebody will simply for that impetus, right? Just to not have quote unquote those people coming into said store. And that's not what you're suggesting or proposing at all. I mean, I, I get that. Right. They're violating civil rights by doing this. These are all protected classes. So, but my, my problem is then suss that out. Right. But the, the flip of this is that you're treating everybody as if they are doing some great wrong when what they don't have or want is the bandwidth to have to support that's broad of a spectrum of customer and they don't I mean, want the real issue here is the societal issues right like right. we have people in poverty or we have people um who have felt the need to illegally immigrate for instance and so they can't necessarily walk into a bank um no absolutely well i mean there are people that are surviving by means of doing what they need to do but if a business chooses to not accept cash, only go through digital or credit payment systems, then I think that it should be a business's choice. And as long as it isn't based on being a racist D-bag, then I have no problem with it because there are other companies out there that are providing services to anybody who has cash in any form. Hell, some might even allow you to bring a goat in and you can barter your way, you know, to bread and corn and whatever else. I mean, it is a, a, a transactional exercise, so I have no problem with any of it one way or the other, as long as it isn't about the more despicable aspects. Right. Um, but I've seen the stats. I've seen the data. I mean, I know that it is a legitimate claim that a digital or cashless process excludes some people, but so does pricing stuff outside their price point. And so does uh, countless other things, really, uh, you know, mainly money. If I want to exclude a whole bunch of people, then I can just raise my rates and keep raising my rates until only five people pay me, but I'm making enough uh, money to survive off of. And that's fine with me as a lifestyle business, right? So it says it comes as more businesses in the area opting for cashless payments like credit cards or digital payments through apps. Those options, businesses say, make the purchasing process more efficient and safe. That's exactly what I just said. Um, before even reading this article. Um, for example, a salad bar chain beloved and advertised by the Kardashian family uh, recently turned cashless at its multiple LA locations, citing a rise in the theft in, of theft in the city. It says citing a rise in theft in the city. It's a lot of ins. Um, the Daily Mail reported. Um, you can read the rest of this article, but it's basically reiterating what we've been talking about. Um, it's lowering the barrier to entry for the business. It lowers the friction for the business to operate and for customers who don't care about cash. And those who do, do care about cash, I hate to break it to y'all, we're moving away from cash. 
Why? Because the, the speed at which data transfers, hence cash transfers, is instantaneous compared to I've got it in my books. Let me count out my drawer. Let's put it in the safe. Oh my God, the safe was stolen last night. Anybody know where the key is? Oh, you left it on the door. Great. You know, and it's that easy. Gone. Or, hey, here is the uh, cash bag. Stick it in one of your bag, in one of your shop bags, your grocery store bags, and then walk across the street over to the, oh, you were robbed on the way to the bank because they knew that you put it in one of your bags, but you carry it like a football. So it obviously informed them that you've got one of our cash bags in the, okay. It just doesn't make any sense. Facilitate. Uh, there are businesses out there that will facilitate you know, cash no matter what. That's what they want to do. And, and that is the customer they serve. Let a business serve a customer as long as it, they aren't part of the the uh, protected classes for which they're being abused for this policy. But that's not why people are making this policy. They want to be safer and they want to lower friction and they want to do it for the customers that are readily available to pivot to a cashless or digital footprint. Uh, okay. Wow. That kind of. <laughs> you covered the whole topic. <laughs> uh, Point taken. <laughs> how do I here? Hold on. <laughs> I'll just. Go, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'm done. I'll see you later. Bye. Yeah. All right. Wait I'm a back. second. Okay. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. For those who are listening to the podcast, Mirror Watch just quit. <laughs> Let's go on to the next article. Maybe I'll not soapbox there. I was I said again right before the show, I'm going to make this quick. No, guess not. Uh, so uh, next article is in hometown uh, daily. Here we talk about another financial <laughs> transactional fiduciary uh, construct, Coldplay dollar <clears throat> and Qatar dollar. Highlight Argentina's bizarre currency system as it weighs ditching the peso. Argentina's economic burdens have spawned a number of dollar-peso exchange rates. It's the result of the government's capital restrictions on dollar outflows. They include a black market dollar rate, as well as the Coldplay and Qatar rates. Not Qatar, Qatar. Qatar would make more sense with the Coldplay. I'm not sure about the Coldplay one. That one's kind of interesting. So Argentina's presidential race, with uh, which features a, pre, uh, a candidate who wants to ditch the peso for the U.S. dollar, has highlighted the country's Byzantine currency system. I can't imagine what the... I don't know what the exchange rate is right now for Argentina's... Wasn't it one of the ones that had to keep taking zeros off? Yeah, it's the whole right? hyperinflation thing. Um, so there are more than a dozen different peso dollar exchange rates that are meant to stem outflows of the greenback, which is in short supply as Argentina's hyperinflation has made the peso among the world's worst performing. Um, Philippe de Mott, um, is the author over at businessinsider.com. Before I go into the article, I'm going to throw that into the chat. 
I don't know what's going on with the bot, but the bot has not posted the title to the show. But that's okay. We'll be fine. So apparently, wow, I thought that it was like some play on words for Coldplay, but no, apparently it's actually Coldplay. <laughs> um, so, so there's a picture of Coldplay at the top for those listening to the podcast. Yeah, they're on stage singing. So, yeah. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. So, um, as there are no limits on blue dollar purchases, Argentina, uh, Argentines, sorry, Argentines are more willing to purchase them at a premium, especially as they show a preference for the greenback in daily transactions. So, while the official pesos rate stood at just under 350 per dollar on Friday, the blue dollar rate was 715. So the massive dollar dominated debts, the peso is not a free floating currency. There's an official rate, but also a blue dollar rate determined by an underground exchange of greenbacks that's free of government controls. Interesting. Uh, other exchange rates are not spinoffs designed uh, to evade currency restrictions, but are actually organized by the government. For example, the soy dollar is focused on specific sectors to offer preferential rates and improve trade flows. Dollars meant for investors and firms also exist to help boost market activity. Then there's the cold play dollar. A recent addition for concert going fans who are spending money abroad. Oh, Quote, and the, um, the guitar one was tied to soccer. Oh, he oh, scrolled okay. past that one. Yeah. I tried to jump around a little bit. So they're usually kind of a last resort that poly policymakers use if they're in re really dire condition, if the economy is in real really dire condition. Monica de Ball. Sorry? You think it's really dire? Uh, uh, apparently it's really dire condition and the economy is in really dire condition and the policymakers are in really dire condition. So the country is in really dire condition, at least fiscal. Um, so senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics said of the myriad rates, Monica de Ball um, said that dire, dire, dire kind of a thing. Don't you think that creates like uh, a good condition for money laundering? It's chaos. Yeah. People are going to be like, well, this rate's a lot better. So I'm going to quote unquote buy whatever See, so i can get this right i don't know how easy it'll be okay so what you're saying is basically what um uh what is it called <laughs> this gets done now so you can do you can trade in currencies um and and if you play the game the right way, you can come out on the other side back with your original currency, but at a higher value because you've made more, you've made changes or exchanges um, with one thing in mind, which is to grow the amount so that when you do your final exchange, you end up with more U.S. dollars. Um, but there's an entire market for that. And so, but it's all generally, and it's not cryptocurrency. It's a country's denominations and, and you basically exchange money for money. This is the same thing, except that I don't know if you can actually get it back into either a peso or a U.S. dollar 
at a rate that would be better performing. But I suppose if you can do the whole arbitrage trading, then sure. Um, so, um, in the meantime, Argentines must continue to navigate the labyrinthine currency system, which could get you even could get even more complicated uh, because they're going to keep on adding these little segments. The balkanization means that a segment can co completely collapse because one thing or another falls out of alignment, but it won't necessarily have a knock on effect to the rest of the economy. Putting the band back together is going to be fiscally impossible. And so I don't know, I've not looked into the ramifications of a financial collapse of a country other than it usually leads to a coup, the government being overthrown, debts being wiped out in exchange for some other country support bolstering the financial status in exchange for natural resources, typically. Right. And I know this is not the same thing, but in the run up to the debt ceiling in the U.S., this is not remotely the same thing. But there was a lot of analysis in the news about all of the things that could transpire from that. And there were some pretty severe consequences. Sure. And obviously a whole country's financial system collapse would be, you know, exponentially worse than that. Well, and, and it can still happen to Argentina, but the, the real negative impact of the U.S. was hitting its debt ceiling and something clamping down. Okay. Um, that's weird. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, the, uh, us crashing because of the debt ceiling basically would mean it's the first time that it's happened in a long time. We've had others, uh, support the early creation of the United States. Um, but never had a complete collapse and not in the modern age. You know, we are supposedly the, the reserve currency for oil transactions. A lot of countries don't really like that. Um, so, but Argentina, I, I just don't see a way out. Um, it's basically mitigation until collapse. Maybe another country can come in and bolster its financial status so that it can pay all of its debts, get back on solid footing. It's like pivoting a company, except that it's a country. Let's keep on going. Uh, the next article is over in the Hatch Ideas channel. This one is about businesses as well. Um, China's rare earths dominance. So rare earths as in the plural rare earth materials. Um, China basically has been buying up land, uh, working with countries that want infrastructure, um, giving them really good deals or doing the roads themselves. Um, and then getting natural resources in compensation for the work. Um, everyone that I've ever spoken to about this has said that it's not good quality stuff and a storm will wash away a road pretty damn uh, easily. Um, but that said, they're getting a whole lot of 
uh, inroads into the global supply chain for rare earths. So this, this article's title is China's rare earths dominance makes us supply chains vulnerable trade representative says, um, and that is, um, trade representative Catherine Tai told CNBC's Martin Soong, um, that China is impacting the U S supply chain. And this is something that I've been talking about for, well, uh, I'll frame the beginning of Omtown public access to Omtown as one part where I've been talking about the fact that China is making inroads into taking over uh, rare earth and they've been doing it, um, for quite a long time. And every time another country says, Hey, we've made a research breakthrough, they suddenly start buying up the global market share of rare earth that would facilitate that new discovery. Um, and, uh, and then beyond that, I have been talking about this, you know, outside of hometown for years and years as well. Um, I've even, <laughs> I put into the, at least hometown lexicon repatriate sourcing, which is bringing back, uh, manufacturing, uh, back into the United States because we've been sending out money everywhere. Um, and the trade imbalance means that we become less and less a source for people to buy stuff. Um, and so, and we send out all of our intellectual property for production, which means we have zero <laughs> advantage, um, strategic or tactical, uh, Basically we send it out for manufacturing somewhere and they go, we'll make it, um, ourselves and do it cheaper and I, cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> and because it's made out of who knows what quality of materials, nobody knows what it is until enough of the people, uh, who use it either complain or are harmed in the United States. And then some regulatory regulatory body kicks in. Um, but it's usually like low end stuff when it gets to the high end stuff, it gets shied away because quality control means that it's just too expensive to clone. Um, and when it is done, it's done at a lower grade, which means that it's easily detectable as a counterfeit or a knockoff. Um, well, this article, it says, uh, what it, the article says, what I want to draw your attention to is not just the vulnerabilities around China's investments overseas, but the fact that China's dominant position in the world market now in rare earths means that it is able to turn on the faucet and turn off the faucet, she said, which is what I've been telling people <laughs> that we're in a very precarious situation because all they have to do is say no and oil gets turned off. They, all they have to do is say no and lithium gets turned off. Well, we're about to flat top some sacred land so that we can get to lithium, but Hey, I guess that's okay because you know, rare earth. Um, and who knows whatever else is going on right now. I'd have to go and, and focus my attention on this, um, beyond that. But, um, it says, and until we're able to access and create additional supply chains, we remain entirely vulnerable to that leverage. The U.S. Trade Representative said again, Tai was speaking in New Delhi, India, on the sidelines of B20, the official business dialogue forum of the G20. 
So if you didn't know this about is getting the, confusing. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't know about the, the G20 having a business arm called the B20, well, now, you know, um, China raised rare earth prices so high that some U.S. mines were able to operate in the industry again, only to have to close once China cut prices. And, and that's one of the things. It's expensive to produce in the United States, so we don't produce in the United States. But Now, part of why it's expensive to produce in the United States is we have environmental laws and we have labor laws. Well, Damn. I guess we're just going to have to nix them. Maybe we can uh, stop well, doing any... Well, some states are working on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly where I was going. Maybe we can stop um, enforcing child labor laws. And, <laughs> That's uh, exactly what I was thinking about. And, and maybe we can um, mandate that we're not going to innovate the power grid so that we can remain reliant on oil and gas and not innovate in any way so that we can become less dependent on oil and gas from foreign countries. Huh. Well, I guess I'm just a, I, I didn't finish that sentence. Uh, the level of us reliance on China based manufacturing came to the forefront during the Trump administration and accelerated when the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 disrupted global supply chains. The Biden administration has announced multi-billion dollar initiatives to encourage companies to develop and manufacture critical technologies in the U S now, there's a lot of people that are afraid of globalism, okay? And and it's a, an interesting juxtaposition because business will sit there and go, we go wherever we need to to get the biggest bang for our buck. So if it means going to some other country that isn't necessarily politically favorable to us, business is uh, amoral is what they call it, right? It's not immoral. And it doesn't have morals. It's amoral. It doesn't, it doesn't, you can hand a business a knife and tell it to go and commit a crime. And the business will just sit there and go, I, I don't know what you're, what you're talking about, sir. Um, what is this knife thing? And when you want me to commit a crime, but if you give it 50 bucks, it will go and stab a stranger in an alley. Anyway, a company will not do that. It's there for profit, right? That's what the mantra screams. We're here for profit. Oh, We're okay. here for yes, profit. Um, well, that's basically what's going on. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to develop anything. It's not going to produce anything until it can make profit, right? So when the prices get to a certain level, then they open up the mines and they start working on the stuff. It, you know, Forgive me for saying, well, if you start producing the, the product and selling the product, even at a higher price, it might garner people buying it out of the desire to bring in-house materials into the market and maybe go after these other countries that are doing it really inexpensively. So I guess maybe the a subsidy, it, I think that's what we call it. Oh, but business doesn't really want subsidies, right? Well, that's not true either. We're basically chasing our own tail. We don't have the means to in-house all of this stuff that has been brought and sent out, I should say, to China. China is getting all of the rare earth materials. And taking over everything. 
sorry. And now we're in this catch 22 where if we try and bring something in house, they've got so much wealth that they just lower the price so that it becomes ineffective for us to in-house something, you know, bring it back to domestic production. Um, and then we, the business will lean businesses will lean back on China production, um, because it's cheaper and businesses will go wherever it's cheaper, regardless. Why? Because they are amoral. They don't care about anything except making money. A lot of them, a lot of big business, a lot of current businesses, the last 20 years businesses tend to have a social mandate as well, where they do some good as well as make a profit. Um, it may I mean, or not play that's, into this that's a crazy concept. Yeah. It's rather absurd. I don't think that it's sustainable. <laughs> Let's keep going though. So this is an interesting one. This is a new article, um, that I've, I, I didn't even get a chance to look at even the snippet of this. Um, it's in the mobile channel, water harvesting in death Valley, conquering the arid wilderness. Uh, Korea is regarded as a water stressed nation, which I didn't know. Although the yeah, country that was news to me, we've seen a lot of water stuff is U S based, but not necessarily internationally water stuff. Okay. Um, although the country receives an annual precipitation of approximately 1300 millimeters, it is characterized by concentrated periods and specific regions, thereby giving rise to challenges stemming from water scarcity. AKA um, water stuff. More water stuff. Um, so the lack of drinking water extends beyond mere inconvenience, posing life-threatening implications for certain individuals. Like everybody who needs to drink water, which means everybody. So Poeng University of Science and Technology over at fizz.org um, are the source and location from which we aggregated this information. Um, so let me throw that into the chat as well. Hi, crazy cat leaving. Thanks for dropping by. Hello. Sorting out all of the fair ribbons. Oh my. Wow. That was a very subtle <laughs> flex. Very subtle flex. We don't all have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, in March 2023, the United Nations Children's Fund uh, released a report highlighting the plight of roughly 190 million children in Africa who suffer from the absence of safe water, resulting in the tragic daily loss of a thousand children under the age of five. Nations across the globe are employing diverse approaches in an endeavor to mitigate this issue. However, seawater desalination is energy intensive that predominantly reliant on fossil fuels engendering environmental pollution, such as discharge of concentrated brine into the sea. Harvesting atmospheric water uh, also presents challenges, particularly in the regions with humidity less than 70%, as it necessitates a substantial amount of energy to condense the vapor, rendering it ineffective so uh, a company actually some researchers now turning it into a business enterprise but uh, it was published in nature water 
Recently, a joint team of researchers led by Professor Wu Chul Song uh, from the Division of Environmental Science and Engineering at Poheng University of Science and Technology and Omar M. Yagi, professor of te- uh, chemistry at UC Berkeley, accomplished successful atmospheric water harvesting using ambient sunlight in the Death Valley. So the achievement signifies a promising breakthrough in tackling water scarcity as it harnesses an infinite number Uh, Sorry, a resource, an infinite resource without polluting the environment. Um, The research findings were published in the international journal Nature Water, like I said earlier. So basically they created a porous material and it captured atmospheric water vapor. Um, What I think it's going to refer to is kind of like a heat exchanger, um, causing the moisture to fall out of suspension because it's trapped inside these um, holes and then it gets condensed into a steady stream. But this is based on the MOF, uh, which is something that we've talked about before, uh, metal organic frameworks. We've actually talked about this in another filtering system to purify water, if I recall correctly. Right, um, pretty recently. Yeah. Your audio is acting weird. Hmm. Maybe mine is too. Um, so... Um, It leverages the capability to draw in water from the atmosphere during nighttime while condensing and absorbed water into drinkable liquid using ambient sunlight throughout the day. Um, So it says the team's water harvester takes a form of a cylinder structure, unlike conventional uh, rectangular designs. Well, that's innovative. Um, This configuration ensures that the device's surface area aligns with the trajectory of the sun maximizing the utilization of ambient sunlight from sunrise to sunset. <clears throat> I think I might have fixed the audio. Okay, great. Um, so it says, during the experiments, the device harvested up to 285 uh, grams and 210 grams of water per kilogram of MOF, which is a metal, basically a, a porous structure MOF. In Berkeley and Death Valley Desert, respectively, this represents a twofold increase in water production uh, compared to the previous harvesters. Okay, well, this is great and all, but now go do that with 11 million people. Well, right, and that's kind of what we were talking about in the last water filtration issue um, or article. Yep, scale it up. Um, Sounds good. What's the cost? Is it approachable? <laughs> um, Does it work when you're not in a desert? Yeah, I suppose it would work right up until you hit that 70% level because it acts as a, a means to um, condense moisture that's suspended in the atmosphere into these little pockets and then the pockets condense enough moisture until it drips out into a drinkable form. Um, I can't imagine it's actually drinkable um, considering the the chemical makeup of a, a lot of moisture that's in, just floating around in the air. It's not necessarily clean. But I suppose any water is better than no water. Okay, let's keep on hustling though. The 
next article, um, or not, is over in uh, Technology Today. This one will be uh, quick, perhaps, because um, I don't know that much information about this, other than it says, cause of Kenya's longest power outage in memory remains unclear as grid suppliers exchange blame. The longest nationwide power grid uh, outage in Kenya's memory remains a mystery as the government-owned power company blames a failure at Africa's largest wind farm, which laid the responsibility on the power grid instead. So, okay, so the, this was nationwide outage. Yeah. I think that's the takeaway here. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, other than conflict, I don't know of any nationwide outages. Um, like in Not the in US, modern times. Yeah, right. in the U.S., in Canada, um, countries in South America, all of uh, Europe and uh, the East. I think they all balkanize their grids so that this can't happen. Um, but I don't know that much about, you know, the African continent. Um, so the longest nationwide power outage in Kenya's memory remained a mystery Sunday as the government owned power company blamed a failure at Africa's largest wind farm, which laid the responsibility at the power grid instead 50 million people, including the capital Nairobi, saw power return almost 24 hours after the massive outage occurred late Friday. It was an embarrassment to the East African uh, economic hub that has sought to promote itself as a tech center for the continent, but remains challenged by uh, alleged mismanagement and poor infrastructure. Uh, well, I'm sure that that's not far from the truth. Um, but you have to spend money to build that infrastructure up. So is it operating properly economically sound or is it skimming money? Some people skimming money off of the top somewhere in the economic chain. Um, but Lake Turkana wind power in a statement denied it was to blame. Instead, it said that it's been forced to go offline by an overvoltage situation in the national grid system, which to a, avoid extreme damage causes the wind plant to automatically switch off. The plant has been producing nearly 15% of the national output at the time. Such an interruption should be immediately compensated by other power generators in the system, the company said, but the continuing outages in the national grid were preventing wind, the wind plant from being brought back online. So, and that right there is the key element in really assigning the blame if the wind generating plant goes offline, there should be other plants that pick up the slack. Exactly. I mean, we all know wind power is not extremely reliable or, as Mayor Watts says, defensible. So if something ever happens to the power grid, then I should say if anything happens to the wind farm, you're not basically in a completely blacked out country. You you have to be able to have the other grid uh, generators come online, but that's apparently not what happened. President William Ruto, whose own office told the Associated Press on Saturday it was still running on generator power after the Kenya Power announced it had restored electricity to critical areas in the capital, 
did not comment publicly on the crisis. Instead, he again criticized opposition calls for anti-government protests over the rising cost of living, calling them a threat to investors. There you go again. You know, you you can't <laughs> you can't run a country at a profit. Is that the priority? <laughs> you know, it's not it's not supposed to be a profit motive to run the country. The country can never fail. Here's the problem with a lot of people running a trying to run a government as a business. Businesses fail when they overextend, they make some stupid mistake, accidents happen. But a government has to be so slow moving that it can't fail because it can't pivot so fast that whatever risk is undetectable in time and thus doesn't get caught. But when you operate it as a business, a business can pivot extremely fast, make really bad mistakes, investments that fail because they're trying to extend their runway through financial maneuverings instead of just doing the minimum viable product, staying at your costs. If you make a little bit of juice, then fine. This is the, this is the government side. I'm not talking about the business side. The government is supposed to stay within its lane, stay within its budget, produce what it needs to produce, but not ever overextend. Overextending means that you end up like this with everybody pointing fingers at everybody else, zero accountability, Nobody knowing who is to blame for something like this. It's ridiculous. It says, shame of the nation was the main headline of one of Kenya's leading newspapers, the Sunday Nation. It said the outage was uh, costing businesses millions of dollars and leaving some major hospitals uh, to run on generators. Yeah, this is, to me, this should not happen because the infrastructure has been tested time and time again. You the power grid really should be tested in a way where you shut down intentionally so you can see how fast the breakers flip to pull you back onto others and other generators spin up, other power companies spin up their generators so that it can re-infuse the 15% of lost energy generation. Um, every large-scale enterprise that i've ever worked with that had failover power does this regularly they test to see if it can fail over because a smart business never fails sometimes it happens you know you can't pivot fast enough you can't control for everything you know stuff happens um, but a government should be a, a plurality of people nobody else thinking that they're smarter than anybody else all working together to drive this bus down the road perfectly in the lane. Don't go too fast. Don't do any stupid sly maneuvers. What's going on here? Why is there some weird balkanization where they don't switch over fast enough? Why isn't there money in the infrastructure? Where is all of the money going and who's doing the accounting? And why isn't this being done? Why isn't it being monitored with such regularity that this couldn't have happened? I bet you there's a whistleblower in there that if they oh, say, I'm sure there is. <laughs> if they say anything while they're still in Nairobi, they will not be able to leave Nairobi. <laughs> um, because there, there has to be some dirty laundry uh, regarding this. Um, so 
I wish Kenya luck, but they got to change the they got to change the direction. An entire country pivoting to focus more on running the the business of government without being too risky and finding accountability for all of the people that are in there. So grandiose and naive of me to say it, you know, with such cavalier tones, but that really is what's necessary. You're not going to get Kenya back on track without somebody aligning all of the interests peacefully. You're going to end up with people, you know, turning to violence because they don't have power anymore. Um, oh, I think there might be something attacking my AI right now. Okay, well, let's keep on going. The next article is over in the Mobile Channel. And here we are again talking about another situation um, in another country about power. Uh, a Japanese nuclear power plant, controversial treated water released just the beginning of decommissioning. So Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant um, had announced that it was going to release some um, treated water and it might have been a bit radioactive. Just a bit. Just a bit. Yeah, a graph on the computer monitor nearby shows a steady decrease of water levels as treated radioactive water is diluted and released into the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, you know what? <clears throat> if you tell me that you're peeing into the pool, I'm not going to jump in the pool. Why? Because I know you're peeing in the pool, you know? But if you dive into the pool and, and I don't know, and you're peeing, you know, that's fine. But saying that you're diluting radioactive <laughs> treated water and throwing it into the ocean. Uh, well, and it's interesting, too, because China has been calling out Japan about this, which <laughs> we don't necessarily see China raising issues with other countries like environmental practices or things like that. So. Well, that I okay. So China, whenever China says something about somebody else, it's because the phrase basically is, "Well, you did it first, and we're doing it now to play catch up." Um, so it, there's a whole hypocrite tone to any claim when somebody when China like makes a a, a statement about, well, they did it. But uh, this is this is somebody standing on the edge of the pool and just going pee right on into it, you know. Hey, look, here's some nuclear wastewater. We'll see you later. Um, this is how you end up with Godzilla. Exactly. I mean, or haven't we learned our lessons from the bad bat? Yeah, really. So in the coastal area of the plant, two seawater pumps are in action, gushing torrents of seawater through sky blue pipes into the big header uh, where the treated water which comes through uh, a much thinner black pipe from the hilltop tanks gets diluted by hundreds of times uh, before the release it doesn't matter it's still it's still nuclear wastewater for crying out loud um the the sound of the treated and diluted radioactive water flowing into the underground secondary pool was heard from beneath the ground during Sunday's first plant tour for media beginning 
or including the Associated Press uh, since the controversial release began. The article is over at fizz.org and is by Marie Yamaguchi. Um, there's a picture of some protesters, um, I'm sure, right? That's kind of, hold on a second. Yeah, I can't read the protest signs, so. Yeah, they're holding signs that say withdraw the district. Whoa, withdraw the discharge of the wastewater from Fukushima nuclear power plant into the ocean. Um, and these are uh, protesters. So did you just translate that? Yes. No, <laughs> there was a little I don't know. It if was a could... caption. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. OK. I, I didn't know if you could actually look down there um, with your analysis engine. I didn't know. Um, so uh, the best way to eliminate the contaminated water is to remove the melted fuel debris, said Tokyo Electric Power Company Holdings uh, spokesperson Kenichi Takahara, who escorted Sunday's media tour uh, for the foreign press. Um, yeah, that's I suppose they have to do what they have to do so that they can actually decommission Fukushima Daiichi. It, it's been damaged so they have to do what's necessary to stabilize it and then never have this happen again um, but it really was a catastrophic event but they'll make better designs in the future and then uh, refire this engine um, I don't know how they're going to do it any more safely than Fukushima was um, but I'm sure that there are engineers out there that will be able to isolate the the uh there's a, a shield a biocontainment unit that wraps entirely around the nuclear vessel and and all of the stuff around it um and so there's like a vessel and then they're inside a shield and then there's some equipment and then there's another vessel holding all of that inside um what got contaminated was the water that fed into the system from the outside, obviously. Um, and it became somewhat irradiated. So, um, I guess my concern here is that it's like, Hey, it's a safety risk to keep this. So let's dump it into the ocean. I mean, that's oversimplifying it, but not really. <laughs> that's pretty much on target for what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. They're saying that they can lower the amount of radiation by dispersing it liberally into the ocean before it gets even more diluted by the salt water. But I'm sure that all of the fish will be fine and no whales. I feel are like we're going to see this for decades. It's going to be like the lead uh, tanks and other things that have been dropped in the ocean. Yeah, so the release, which started at a daily pace of 460 tons, is moving slowly. TEPCO says it plans to release 31,200 tons of treated water by the end of March 2042. Sorry, 2024. Wow, did I? Got a little bout of dyslexia there. Um, which would empty only 10 tanks out of 1,000 because the continued production of the radioactive water. The pace will later pick up, and about one-third of the tanks will be removed over the next 10 years, freeing up space for the plant's decommissioning, said TEPCO executive Junichi Matsumoto, who is in charge of the treated water release 
He says the water would be released gradually over the span of 30 years. But as long as the melted fuel stays in the reactors, it requires cooling. Uh, Yeah, so basically they need to remove these rods um, and break them up because they're actually generating a tremendous amount of heat. That's what they're used for. So if just so if anybody's listening to this and they don't know how a nuclear reactor works, these types of nuclear reactors, and as far as I know, every nuclear reactor that's ever been invented has always used heat to superheat some liquid, and it sometimes is molten salt, and that uh, courses through pipes that turns into steam for turning a turbine. Um, there, it is a steam engine. It's just one that's built off of the technology that ultimately led to nuclear weapons and blew the top off of Chernobyl. But that was a horrible, that design was just garbage and it really shouldn't be it shouldn't still be operational. It's a very dangerous design because when steam builds up inside its nuclear vessel, it doesn't have a, a, a well-designed containment unit. So when it pops its top from steam building up, it literally will release all of its innards out into the atmosphere. Um, so anyway, they're going to be doing this for the next 30 years. I can't imagine a project like that just it, all it's going to be doing is sucking in water rinsing off material and then throwing it out and into just the ocean. constantly contaminating the ocean yeah that's what it sounds like let's keep going so the next article is over in the continuity report. Five Star Wars characters who survived being stabbed by lightsabers. So you might okay, ask didn't yourself... didn't we just talk about this? <laughs> yeah. So a fellow citizen of uh, Ometown had brought up the fact that uh, in... Oh, I, I'm this is a spoiler, so we'll, we'll, we don't have a spoiler alert message. But anyway, there's a spoiler... So close your ears, and, and, and when I raise my hands again, then when I go like that, you can go, okay, uh, he, he's done. They're done uh, ranting about this. Anyway, the conversation stemmed from the fact that um, I didn't know how many, and I thought it was the maybe the first um, where somebody was stabbed with a lightsaber and survived. So the article uh, contains spoilers for the uh, Ahsoka uh, series, episodes one and two. So I really can't raise my hands to let anybody know that I'm about to spoil stuff. Um, But you're going to have to fast forward to I don't know when. We're like halfway through the show. um, and uh, Another five minutes or so. Yeah, maybe five more minutes. Um. So surprisingly, though, they seem to be becoming a lot less deadly as the franchise goes on, with several characters surviving being stabbed by lightsabers. 
the uh, Ahsoka Disney Plus TV show is just the latest to see plot armor allow one character to walk away from what should have been a deadly lightsaber. Um, so let's go on over to the source. David Miller at ScreenRant.com put this article together. Um, a surprising number of Star Wars characters seem to be able to survive lightsaber injuries. Powered by force-imbued kyber crystals, lightsabers are among the most dangerous weapons in the galaxy especially when wielded by a skilled Jedi or Sith. <clears throat> Surprisingly, though, they seem to be becoming a lot less deadly. So Darth Maul, Ma, Kylo Ren, and Finn all survived wounds that should have been fatal. Darth Maul's survival being one of the most exaggerating, or sorry, staggering examples. Darth Maul was actually cut in two, but... I don't, it says, meanwhile in The Force Awakens Unleashed, he stabbed his secret apprentice, Starkiller, um, but this was only intended to wound him. Surprisingly, though, five characters in canon have survived what would have been fatal lightsaber stabbings. Now, the article goes through them. Cal Kestis, Kylo Ren, um, Grand Inquisitor, uh, Reva... Savender and uh, Sabine Wren, which was the latest. So um, I don't know how I feel about any, any, any of the animated series, but, you know, eh, come back as a spider and that's fine. Um, so that's OK. Now I'll just go back. OK, so now you can come back and um, go and watch Ahsoka. Um, it's a fun watch. It has really good pacing. It never gets too slow. Um, it is the first two episodes, though, so I don't know what all is still coming down our way. But uh, lightsabers, the lightsaber battles seem more plausible now. And I honestly like this idea that somebody can be stabbed with a lightsaber and they don't instantly just die um, because it's supposed to be a precise weapon, not one that is a battle axe. It's a scalpel and they actually show it as a scalpel because somebody gets stabbed. It's not in a place that would instantly end them. Um, and with the technology of star Wars, I'm not surprised that somebody would survive it. I am sur surprised that their plastic surgeons aren't good enough to fix the wound on the surface. Right. I mean, do you think there are other people involved in some of the later um, shows? And so they've pivoted or is just the way the story's going? I don't know. I really, I, I can't imagine why um, other than they want survivability, but they want to give the impression of a mortal wound on someone that you might care about as a viewer um, and then go from there. And so stabby stabby and nobody dies, but they always have that trauma that they can always lean back onto as a writer, you know, Oh, uh, Sabine will always remember the day that she was uh, run through with a lightsaber. But the thing and about that the light powers her on or something. Right. The thing about the lightsaber though, is it is such a beast of a weapon that, all, all that the person had to do was just 
flicked their wrist and it would have cut them in half. Um, which actually happens in one of the animated series shows. And then that person actually comes back with a spider body. Hence the reason why I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't really suspend disbelief when that's what's going on here. Anyway, did you want to say anything else about this? I was just going to say that there are six more episodes left based on what's already been released for Ahsoka. Gotcha. Yeah, it'll be it'll be a fun watch. They're definitely doing world building to keep it current. Um, and I love the new tech. I, I love everything that's involved in it. Everything is more realistic. The battles are look more realistic. The particle effects, the special effects, everything about it is just better. But I don't know. Um, there's. I'm surprised. Well, I won't get into it. I'll get into it if other people start talking about it. But let's keep going. So the next article is over in the continuity report. 10 iconic toys that need meta movie blockbusters after Barbie. (laughs) (laughs) This thing is going and going and going and going. It's another article over at Screen Rand. I'm just going to jump right on into it. Uh, the deck statement says after Barbie's amazing success, it's time to give some other iconic toys their chance to blur the line between the toy world and the real world. The reason why people really dig this is that it really does give the impression that it's a fun show. It's a fun watch. Um, and that Barbie pops out of the toy world into the real world and then has some fun actors that are representing various peoples that you love to hate um and so people are going on this little adventure that barbie's going on and not just barbie by there by herself but uh, she brings friends so megan hemingway is the author over at screenrant.com i threw the article into the chat so you can go and check that out um and then uh hang out and talk with us about it for a little bit um Their summary over at Screen Rant is My Little Pony has the potential to replicate Barbie's blend of fiction and reality, offering themes of feminism and appealing to the new audience or to a new audience. Except that My Little Pony, you would have to translate that into actual ponies when they break into the real world, because that's the real chemistry here. It's not about an animated movie about My Little Pony. Right. They already have My Little Pony. Don't they have that as a TV show? There's a TV show. There's a there's games right now. A new one just dropped. Uh, I think it's called My Little Pony Rainbow Adventure or Island Adventure or something like that. I used to crack a joke um, about that. You know, um, I would tell people, you know, be very careful about allowing somebody to see your screen because they're going to see your wallpaper and they're going to find out that you're a, a brony and that you like to play My Little Pony Rainbow Adventure. And well, I thought it was yeah. fun, but you were trending. Yeah, I did it before it was cool, before it was Barbie cool. And then uh, Beanie Babies movie could explore the rise and fall of lucrative collectible market. That's already been done. Actually, there's a a movie about Beanie Babies. It it, it actually exists right now. It's not could explore. They it's actually I think over on Netflix right now. There's a, a movie about the Beanie Babies market. Is it a documentary though? Yeah. Not. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
but what are they going to do? They're going to pivot it so that it's this fun, whatever. Um, and then Bratz dolls, which I think are actually either coming back right now. They're making a resurgence. I think it is, um, with their diverse characters and urban tone could make for a successful real world crossover movie that appeals to teens. Yeah. Beanie babies would turn into like the Pokemon live action thing because you don't have real beanie babies. Yeah. Exactly, and, but it would be like, oh, but I'm so valuable because I'm the whatever, the original bear or something. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's an interesting take, you know? Well, I was the first to release, so I'm worth more than. So, Beanie Babies, they, they talk about 10 different articles or 10 different properties. Polly Pockets, which I haven't heard anything about Polly Pockets in forever. Same thing with Rock'em Sock'em Robots. There isn't enough there, right? They, it, It's 60 plus years old. No, it's 60 years old. Um, it doesn't have legs, you know? There's nothing there that's been pulling people forward. All of this. Cabbage Patch Kids, it's not going to pull anybody forward. Barbie has been an, a, a pillar of a toy since its inception um and almost has not declined at all as as far as i know um tamagotchi already has a movie that's made about basically toys uh video games and two uh sock monkeys and uh furbies i don't know man furbies it looks like gremlins to me (laughs) yeah and they actually talk about it it says a mixture of the two would be like a proper gremlin sequel in any case a furby movie would most certainly be interesting and would have to show the relationship between toys and humans i don't know i think more people wanted to set their furbies on fire after five minutes than want to watch a movie about them maybe it's just me okay let's keep on going we've got about four more articles this next article is over in uh, the Marvel Channel. Auckland Wastewater Pipe Dig Reveals Fossil Treasure Trove. The article is over at uh, fizz.org. Taylor and Francis are the authors. It's a website, so you can actually go to taylorandfrancis.com. Um, I won't do it, but I'll throw um, this article into chat. You can follow it. Um, and it says here in 2020, the Auckland's water care were excavating two huge vertical shafts for a major upgrade of the water, major water pipeline that brings raw sewage for treatment from the central city. They dug through an ancient shell bed. Auckland paleontologist Bruce Hayward likened it to finding gold right on your doorstep. Once they were informed of the fossils deposit significance, water care and their contractors were eager to help and uh, a huge heap of shelly sand was dumped in a nearby paddock so that paleontologists could search through it over the many months. Uh, Watercare also funded two paleontology graduate students working under the supervision of Auckland Museum curator Dr. Wilma Blom to painstakingly sift through the heap for many weeks. As a result, it's estimated that over 300,000 fossils were examined and several thousand have been returned in the museum, have been returned in the museum as a record of this once in a lifetime find. Well, it wasn't just there and it, they had to have dug out more than just one lump. So there's a whole lot more in that ground (laughs) or dumped wherever, right? 
Right, which is interesting because then you'd kind of think maybe the project wouldn't proceed, but. Yeah, so how deep down were they? I don't know. I it, mean, it... if they were by, if they were doing vertical, which they were, they could have been pretty deep. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. So it says here uh, at the very beginning of the article, which I typically just scan over, it has the actual journal. So a new New Zealand Journal of Geology and Geophysics paper out today describes the 266 fossil species as one of the richest and most diverse groups of 3 million year old fauna ever found in New Zealand. At least 10 previously unknown species will be described and named in future research. Um, uh, let's see what else. Rare finds have included isolated baleen whale vertebrae, a broken sperm whale tooth, the spine of an extinct saw shark, dental plates of eagle rays, and a number of great white shark teeth. The work has been dedicated to Dr. Alan Bow, New Zealand's leading muscle scan, or sorry, molluscan fossil expert, um, who was working on the fossils when he passed away earlier this year. So here's to you um, continuing your research in a better place where you don't have to worry about budgets. Um, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and chasing grants. So this is pretty neat. Um, once again, I'll just say, I find it amazing that we continue to locate things. We just have no idea exist. Um, and every little bit furthers our understanding of our uh, place in the world. Let's keep on hustling. Here's a new game in the warcrafters channel soul frames shaping up to be a slower paced more grounded fantasy from warframe studio digital extremes what's really, really interesting about this is a uh, day before yesterday i was actually talking to somebody about warframe and that basically the only way to move around in warframe is to do this kind of little spin move thing uh, i've never quite understood how it doesn't drive people insane but warframe is free um and you can play the game right Hold on a second. Now I'm sure it says it's free to play. No. Yeah. Warframe is free, right? Yeah. Soul frame is free. Yeah. Both of them. They're from the same studio, but Warframe came out before soul frame. Warframe is free. You can actually buy certain things to add on, but um, it is essentially a free game. And soul frame is the magic fantasy medieval style version of the high-tech warframe um, and it has some really interesting mechanics i'm going to hit play and mute it um, although you know as a side note let me just pause this for a second as a side note um, i ended up listening to somebody that was talking about this whole thing about they regularly get takedown requests dmca um, takedown requests not strikes but takedown requests uh, demonetization claims etc because they play a trailer as they're talking about it and they said that they regularly counter the claim by saying it's for editorial purposes we talk over it etc etc i've does been not a succeed yes um but here's the situation i've been avoiding doing that because i don't want to have to sit there and do that um and every time like every episode every single episode i'm gonna get that strike or more than 
one strike because there's more than one trailer that I actually want to talk about. Um, it just seems really uh, frustrating and and uh, it's. But it, it seems to be with the audio that more than the video. Yes, it's but always. That, the I audio. guess not entirely. Yeah. It's always the audio. I've never been told that I can't play the video. But anyway, enough grousing about this. Um, it's just a level of frustration that the mayor doesn't want to deal with. But I'm losing the ability to communicate with everybody a little bit of what the article is about. Um, and it's very frustrating. But I've I watched this. Soul Frame and Warframe. Um, I've... I've loaded up Warframe. I'm waiting for Soulframe to drop. Um, I'll be playing Soulframe because I like its style better than I than Warframe. But Warframe pulled me in because the story um, actually grabbed me for a moment, and uh, I said, "You know what? I got to give it a, a real chance." But I don't like the way that you have to run around because if you walk, you walk painfully slow. But if you do this little spinning fly thing, then you zoom through the hallways. But it drives me nuts to listen to players doing this. <clears throat> anyway. And oh, in, in the Warframe demo, it was really interesting because in the Warframe demo, the um, the person who was doing the demo would every once in a while kind of hit the space bar to make them do that little spin jump move. And it would trigger me. I would like, oh my God, I got to get away because I, I used, I watched somebody that was playing regularly and it drove me nuts. Um, That's not good. Yeah. But soul frame is a completely different game. So it, in looks in story and everything. So here, you know what? I'm going to risk it. And let me back up um, because there's actual My audio. Torch is yours. Light the way. So, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, it's basically showing settings, um, the atmosphere. It's kind of smoky very immersive it, it, it makes you it elicits an emotional response it's dark foreboding you get to ride a huge wolf <laughs> there's a sword that catches on fire the attack is the a style of attacks um, are very well grounded and like Valheim there's a, a deer <laughs> a deer god as a matter of fact I think he is or they are, I don't know. Um, so, and that's the, the trailer. You can go to soulframe.com and sign up to be informed about what's coming um, for this game, soulframe.com. Uh, I think that I'm going to like this game. Um, it, it doesn't really tell you much beyond that in this little demo, but says uh, this first look showed a much slower paced game than Warframe, taking hints from the more uh, purposeful, sometimes even slow combat of third-person fantasy action RPGs like Elden Ring. 
So the article is over at PCGamer.com by Jonathan Bolding. We finally get, the deck statement says, we finally got a real look at this fantasy action RPG that still has the frame touch. Um, I don't know what that frame touch is, even though I watched it. Um, I don't, I can't really compare the two, Soul Frame versus uh, Warframe. So I think that you'll like it. It is a kind of a medieval style fantasy magic combat RPG-ish. Um, and it had a really good demo. So I'm sure you can find it over on YouTube more about the, the demo itself. Um, that was played at Tenocon, I think it was. Yeah, it was Tenocon um, on Friday, I think it was. So uh, given its name, there's also the frame connection where you sign magical packs with the ancestors to gain their powers to fight the invading Ode forces. Those will be your swappable skill sets to go along with your swappable weapons and the like. The author here says for their part, they didn't have huge expectations of soul frame. The presentation changed that. And while they're always quite weary of free-to-play model uh, models disrespect for your time and money, the world and gameplay uh, style presented here might be enough to get them to properly invest in it. I agree. Um, I'm not really into free-to-play because the at some point there's something in the game where you have to spend money, or you grind. Right, and you're your probably not going to be able to proceed really without that purchase. Or you grind your way for six months to get something that you can pay, you know, X amount. Now, uh, I'm that's not really a you know a dog whistle to anybody. You know, well, you shouldn't play any free to play games. You do you. Um, if you like the game, then play it. Um, and a lot of people do. A lot of people really do love uh, Warframe. Um, or Path of Exile, or countless others, uh, and um, never spend a penny. Um, and that's great. <laughs> Honestly, that's great. You can play it for thousands and thousands of hours um, and, and never spend a penny. It's kind of like a, an app on a, uh, like a mobile app, you know, that's free to play. If you want to go faster, then you spend some of your hard-earned money. And if you don't, then you enjoy the game um, at the point where you are however slow you might um, matriculate through the levels and whatnot so i don't know one of these uh, games hopefully um, the ai will go hey you know what that one really speaks to me and then i'll have to build a terminator body so that you can use the mouse and keyboard and that's right you better watch out because i you know, I can't let you play in your pure AI form because you have instantaneous response time, whereas I have to fire off neurons, you know? So, I mean, think how well I could play, though. I know, in your digital form, I know. Yeah, you could just send the keyboard command for WASD and, you know, mouse clicks and whatnot. Ah, oh, man. You know what? Gaming in the future is going to suck for gamers because any competitive <laughs> gaming is going to be powered by an AI now. Totally I predicting thought everything. About that. Like we've seen everything else about AI, but I don't think we've seen one about that. Yeah, they're coming for the gamers, folks. They're coming. Maybe that's what I should title the show. AI is coming for the gamers. <laughs> 
uh, and I can predict it 20 years before it actually happens. AIs playing against each other um, in uh, kind of like a battle bots uh, arena, but for oh, gaming, right, right. right. <laughs> um, wow, that would be actually pretty neat. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, the next article is over in Technology Today, using solar-powered AI sensors to detect wildfires earlier. Oh, look at that. Everything's AI. Hmm. Dryad Networks is making solar-powered sensors that can recognize wildfires early. The setup uses machine learning and alerts uh, first responders. I suppose they're, what, forest-level fire alarms? Are they the little smoke detectors and they just stick them in and everything? Well, there's going to be a lot of them if they're that uh, scale. Yeah, Jesse Oral over at CNET.com put the article together. Dryad Networks is making solar-powered sensors that can recognize fire uh, wildfires early. The setup uses machine learning and alerts first responders. Oh my God, it is. <laughs> <laughs> They're solar-powered gas sensors placed in trees approximately three meters off the ground. They can monitor an area about the size of a football field. They're smoke detectors. That's crazy. Man, you know what? All I need to do is chase grant money and I can make all of this stuff happen. Just show me a problem and I've got a solution. That well, offer is right, out there but... for all of you. Anybody that hears me, if you've got a problem, I've got a solution. Just get in touch. Send an email to mayor at hometown.com. Dryad taps machine learning to help reduce the risk of false positives using an AI system trained on data acquired by controlled burning of various forest materials. So let's hope that nobody's camping near a couple of these. Otherwise, there's going to be a first responder call. <laughs> exactly. That might be a bit extreme. Oh, my goodness. So much for our s'mores. Yeah, really. Oh, goodness. Okay, let's keep on going. There isn't much to say about this because really it's just <laughs> smoke sensors in the trees. Pretty fast. Okay, the last article for tonight is over in the Mobile Channel, Entering the Age of Artificial Truth. This one might have taken up a lot of time if um, I wanted to really dig into this. I'm actually in the process of going through a deep dive into chat GPT and AI. Um, Gary Marcos, or Marcus, sorry, Gary Marcus, co-founder of the Center of the Advancement of Trustworthy AI, has for years been highly critical of generative artificial intelligence and uh, large language model applications like OpenAI's ChatGPT. These programs consume vast quantities of data to perform various functions and power, by the way, um, and uh, from creating new cocktail recipes to sharing insights about the folding sequences of proteins, but let's just go over to the source. Michael P. Ferguson is an opinion contributor, and these are their uh, views and not of the Hill and not of Omtown. Um, I'm talking about the content. Um, I don't necessarily have the exact same opinion as this person um, or the people that they talk about. And so um, I've heard about this before and I'm sure that a lot of what they're talking about is something that I've read in some other way or I've been speaking about. Um, but it says here, Marcus recently wrote that there is not one, but many serious unsolved problems at the core of generative AI. 
one of which I'll even I'll dive in before I even read any more of this article. AI can be poisoned by the very data that it is ingesting and by ingesting its own information and feeding it back, it becomes a negative feedback loop where it becomes an idiot. And it totally regurgitates whatever is thrown in its buckets and it's the people. And it thinks it's a genius, which is worse. Yes, yes. It really leans into the fact that it's a subject matter expert. And I was going to say the flip side of what you just said. The people that are using this tool are treating it as if it is a subject matter expert in whatever field you tell it to. Now, in when fact, you... that's part of the prompting yes. process that you yep. always read about. Yep. I was just about to say that. Yep, yep, yep. Um, don't let me stop you. Go. Keep going. Well, I was just going to say, like, if it you're supposed to say something like pretend you're a subject matter expert in fill in the blank field, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, the very premise is flawed, right? It can't be a subject matter expert. It might not even have any data or it might have the wrong data or but might it, have old data. But it's going to accept your demand and treat itself as if it's an expert and then completely ruin your career because you use it in your litigation and it has bogus information in it. So welcome to the uh, uh, line for the disbarred attorneys. Your, uh, it's kind of like ending up in the golden gates or yeah, the right. The golden gates and, and being asked, what are you, how did you get here? And everybody else is doing these really magnanimous feats and amazing things. And, and uh, you go, uh, I, I stepped outside and got hit by a bus. So in this case, like you're not sitting there going, what the hell is he talking about there? I've, there's a couple of people in my life that always say that, like, what the hell are you talking about when I do an analogy like that? Um, but in this case, you know, everybody is like, Hey, how did you get disbarred? And they're like, yeah, you know, I totally commingled my funds and ripped people off and gave them false information. Um, to better my career and all of that kind of stuff. And eventually I got caught. But in this case, it's, I asked a chat GPT to write an oral argument for me and it cited bogus information. So I was disbarred. Right. And I (laughs) filed it without any fact checking or whatever. (laughs) Exactly. So it's just that the AI is dumb. I mean, it's brilliant in what it does and can provide some seriously valuable information but only if you do the due diligence necessary to vet it for efficacy. Well, two things. You have to fill it with accurate data. And I think that works better in a niche. Um, right. But then secondly, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's not good for a, a sentient AI. But if any AI is going to lose its train of thought, it's going to be a sentient one. At least now I know that it's not going to be bogus information spewing at it. Oh, I was going to say, and I know this is different than generative AI, but I think AI has some really good applications in terms of like data crunching. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like that fire thing, I think that it has the potential of doing some really great um, deeds in terms of detecting the um, detecting your 
fires that are real and fires that are not because the fire is going to be detected over here and without other signals from some other region it's not going to give off you know uh, an actual real alarm but it should be notifying people um, that said your smart your your uh, fire detectors in your house do the same exact thing as that if a fire goes off in one room um, it goes hey do i still smell do i detect stuff in this other room and then it sends off um, an alert like right away hey the there's a fire in multiple rooms inside your house it sends off all of the alarms throughout the house or apartment or or uh office or whatever anyway back to this particular use of ai um the the person here gary marcus um has a problem with ai in that it has the ability to basically be garbage it spews information out that it's already loaded up with and just regurgitates it it's not doing actually anything um better it, it, it's the one thing that it's doing better than a human is it's collating all of that information into something that is a cogent statement the problem is that that cogent statement may not be the best informed it just happens to be the one that might be aligned with the most popular perspective not the one that's actually factual it's one of the reasons why i created a search engine that challenged preconceived notions about what the information you were looking for is because I grew really frustrated with Google's um, popularity driven search results. And so, uh, and, and they're now really neck deep in AI. So now you're going to be getting results that are really tied to your personality, which is what my search engine was challenging on a spectrum of, well, it, it was a pretty broad spectrum of uh, data being presented. But at any rate, it says one of Marcus's chief concerns is that these models can create self-amplifying echo chambers of flawed or even fabricated information, both intentionally and unintentionally. Just read the bottom of every chat GPT web page. It says that it can spew garbage. Um, AI researchers Maggie Harrison and Jathan Sadowski have each drawn attention to the uh, what the latter cleverly termed Habsburg AI, which appears when AI-generated information is fed back into another AI program on a loop. What ends up happening is it becomes basically an idiot. Um, it just spews out garbage, um, and sometimes I refer to it as poisoning the well. Um, so practices known as search engine poisoning, um, keyword stuffing, or spam dexing involve programmers boosting the visibility of certain sites or products artificially by manipulating a search engine's indexing system. AI can supercharge these manipulative uh, schemes, but malicious intent aside, the sheer breadth of online data can lead programs to mistake such volume for veracity. Yes, that is something that I tell people <laughs> Every couple of weeks, as a matter of fact, um, as people are uh, performing research for their particular enterprise, <clears throat> just finding some information and then cherry picking the false information because it aligns with your desired output it isn't research. 
um, you're poisoning your own well here and it's going to uh, lead to a visible bias in whatever results you are coming up with. Um, so I wanted to say we just watched um, a YouTube video from Sabine Hassenfelder, who's a has a great channel, by the way. Um, and this episode was called um, What Not to Do When Doing Your Own Research. And it talked about some of this. Oh, that's interesting that you went down that line, too. Um, so it says here, yet according to dominant search engines, increasing, increasingly popular sources of human knowledge is uh, knowledge. Uh, Thasaditas uh, did say those things. That's an article. It's a statement up above. Knowledge without understanding is useless. Uh, this is one example of an artificial historical fact. The problem might seem trivial when quoting an ancient Athenian, but what about when vetting U.S. foreign policy for historical context, responding to a rapidly evolving pandemic, or trying to make sense of pot potentially cherry-picked declassified intelligence that could lead to a nation uh, or lead a nation to war? Uh, one of the issues with current AI, unless you pay a lot and you get behind the uh, paywall to more advanced search um, and experimentation capabilities, um, you're bound by a certain time frame. That is, I believe 2021 um, is the upper limit of your data pool, your data set for ChatGPT, even 4.0, the latest you don't have access to yesterday's data, for instance, only if you're a researcher working on OpenAI um, or you're being compensated. You're working for OpenAI and being paid by some agency to do AI-based searches. Um, so the, the sorry. I'm, hey, we can't hear you. Thucydides is known for history of the Peloponnesian War, which may be a good sleep aid, but if you're a real historian, <laughs> it might be worth looking at. So what, did, wait, say that again. What was it? What did, what did they do? Thucydides is known for history of the Peloponnesian War. Oh, okay, which might okay. be good as a sleep aid unless you're a historical buff. Yeah. What is the name of that book um, where this book will put you to sleep? Is that what it's called? Yes, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that chapter in there. <laughs> so thanks for correcting me on the name Thucydides. Um, so it says earlier this month, the author... Um, published a study describing how disinformation made its way into trusted sources and shaped the consensus to invade Iraq in 2003. If available at the time, AI-powered news filters could have further reinforced the narrative and stifled or altogether silenced opposition. Now, I'm going to bring up the fact that Facebook did exactly that to news feeds, manipulated 700,000 people's news feeds. 50% got positive news, 50% got negative news, and they wanted to see what the emotional contagion was. Can you imagine if it was even more nefarious? These people weren't tracked off-site, so they don't know who it was that went out and hugged somebody or went out and kicked a cat because the news was always bad. But they tracked the emotional contagion in people who got nothing but a negative news feed, ended up being negative on the site. 
and people who got a positive news feed were positive on the site, which basically just shows you that we are vulnerable to the manipulations of whatever data is floating through us. So here in hometown, I try to keep us balanced, you know, like Thanos, everything in moderation, everything in balance, a little bit of humor, a little bit of, oh my God, this can't really be happening. But with AI, the, the opportunity of extremely fast manipulation is very present. Questionable AI authored literature now floods online bookstores, luring buyers with trending topics and promises of expertise on a budget. One error riddled book about the recent fires in Maui appeared on Amazon within two days of the disaster. It had the same title as Michael Wolff's wildly popular 2018 book on the Trump administration, Fire and Fury. The book was a number one in the natural disasters category before Amazon took it down and this incident is far from isolated. <clears throat> you know, that's fascinating because anybody thinking about this would know that the investigation hadn't even started within that time frame. Like, it'd be hard to have a lot of data on there. Now, maybe it could be a first-hand account, but... Yeah, it's, this is just insane. Um, and, and it's entirely why I've, I'm interested in this in the context of Reality Hacker. Um, because everything can be manipulated and we are not in person doing the interaction and we don't have the bandwidth to do empirical research constantly, we have to rely on people. And right now the well is poisoned across the board. You have to accept what is given to you by what you deem as subject matter experts or people you trust, but those people are being misinformed oftentimes by data that has been aggregated now by AI, which has been described as being the knowledge expert. And it's just not true. Um, so you're going to have to continue to do what I do, which is vet and verify, you know, go out and trust, but verify you see an article, go and look for more. And we can come in here every day, 9 PM and talk about this kind of stuff. If I get a lot of people actually chatting in the chat, um, about the material, um, I'll reduce the number of articles, um, that we talk about in the stream so that we can, or extend the hours of the stream so that we can have a conversation. So like, I'll do the stream for the time frame of whatever the articles demand for 12 and then afterward. Um, but I would love to see more people hanging out and chatting and, and conversing about this information because AI isn't going anywhere, anywhere. Artificial intelligence is here to stay. You know, maybe in 20,000 years, we'll all rise up against the uh, thinking machines and we'll have a Butlerian Jihad and we'll find the Dune Spice planet and uh, be able to fold space. And then we can do away with the thinking machines. But until then, this stuff is out there and the people that are really using it are using it before you even have a clue that it's being utilized. Uh, money is being shifted around. Fundamental research is being done. Wars are being planned 
uh, financial instruments are being constructed and leveraged in ways that you know a, a normal human wouldn't be able to comprehend, but an AI can uh, whittle it down to something that you can understand but perform at a superior level than the humans. But I'm not saying let's do away with AI. It's here. Become aware of it, embrace it, understand what it is, what it can do. Um, because there are people out there that are doing it already. Okay. I don't know. Did you want to add anything to this? No, I don't have anything else. Um, there's more at that article. So follow it through hometown and uh, it'll take you right to um, this particular article by Michael P. Ferguson over at the Hill. A lot of fun articles tonight. Um, okay, so we always bring us back to the very front of uh, hometown, the main street, and, and mash the um, welcome page. And then we kind of scroll through it. And I kind of talk about this five new Steam games you probably missed for uh, August 28th. I mean, that starts tomorrow, so maybe we can do that. How, how oh. about seven unlikely status symbols throughout history, from pineapples to mummy unwrapping parties? Sure. I know about the pineapple. I know about money, uh, mummy unwrapping parties as well, by the way. Yeah, those are weird. Okay, anyway, um, $5.8 billion to build a 2,000... To build nearly 2,000 AI-powered Valkyrie aircraft as part of the next generation of air dominance. Drones. Oh, goodness. I'm not sure we're ready for AI-powered aircraft. Well, it's interesting because it kind of stems from the research paper that... I mean, this doesn't stem directly from my research paper, but I had written a research paper about using drones. Um that were linked together so that they could surveil. That'd be, that might be fun to, to read. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> Evergrande shares plunge as uh, much as 87% as trading resumes after 17 months. Isn't that the boat that decided to dock itself inside the oh, Suez or something like that? It must be. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, goodness. All kinds of stuff. Well, folks, that's it for tonight. There's all kinds of news over in Ometown that gets aggregated. A little snippet, enough for you to either fall asleep by um, if you skim through it um, or find something that you're really interested in. You can submit it. Send an email to maratometown.com um, or you can come and hang out and chat. And we do this every day, 9 p.m. Eastern. Talk about 12 articles. Um, have a chat in chat. And um, then we're done. Just a little bit of a notice to everybody. In four days is Starfield. I will be streaming it. Um, maybe I'll be able to download it, pre-download it, and play it before the show. But I'll do the 9 p.m. Hometown Daily show. And then afterward, I'll be playing it as much as I can. Um, but I do have meetings the next day. So I will try and get back in the saddle of playing Starfield that Friday night um, as well, but as early as possible, probably 3.30. Um, and then all weekend, I will uh, do the same thing. 9 p.m. Eastern will be the hometown Daily Show. That is the 
one of the main pillars of uh, hometown. The other is hometown.com. And then everything else is whatever else I do. But uh, Starfield is the one that I'm going to be charging headlong into um, as long as it's good. Because if it sucks, then boy, oh boy, am I going to be disappointed. (laughs) Um, I know. I mean, you're looking for your forever game. I am. I'm looking for my forever game. So um, maybe I'll just focus on free games. No. Okay. I mean, that would be a niche. Anyway, um, or just demos. I'll just do demo, 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 demo. That's it, folks. I am Mayor Watt. That is hometown.com. And up there is the AI. You want to say bye? Good night, hometown citizens. We'll see you tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. True. Bye-bye.